Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's totally going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Presented by TickPick and Mecca Nutrition, we are joined by a very special guest today, Joey Zanaboni, play-by-play broadcaster for the Johnson City Cardinals. Joey, I know you're in St. Louis right now. How are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm good, Jack. How about yourself? Not too bad. Can't complain. Again, we got about a few weeks before everybody heads back to school. If they let us head back to school in the fall, again, crazy times with the whole COVID-19 pandemic. I know in your case, uh, the whole minor league baseball season was shut down. How are you uh, holding up right now in St. Louis? Yeah, it's been kind of depressing uh, in terms of the sports getting shut down, but uh, you know, at the same time, there's blessings and everything, and, and from a positive standpoint, I am from St. Louis, but I, I just haven't spent as much time here over the last five or six years, uh, just working in some different states and some different teams. So I think the biggest blessing for me is just getting to reunite with my family and uh, kind of rediscover the joys of just being at home. Have you been doing anything uh, different as opposed to, you know, kind of keeping your reps up uh, towards broadcasting, like any any other things that you're interested in that you didn't get the chance to do before, but now you're kind of uh, turning attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think that the poetry that I do outside of baseball announcing has been something that probably in the last 18 months or so I haven't paid as much attention to. So the prose and the poetry is something that I've really – uh, sort of turn my attention to, and I see that as really being kind of the foundation of what I do in, in broadcasting. Uh, it's not really as widely sort of, you know, disseminated or whatever. I don't really put it out there to the uh, public as much, but, you know, I have a couple of chat books, uh, poetry-wise, and just been working on some essays and things, some of them about baseball and some of them just about, <clears throat> you know, other things. So, 
Yeah, that's that's really what I've been doing. I've been uh, announcing some games for a friend's little league team. He's actually in the Dallas Fort Worth area, but yeah. I'll stream the games and I'll I'll do that. And uh, you know, some opportunities are kind of popping up here for the next couple months, but it just is a matter of whether or not they actually happen because of the COVID thing. I oh just, yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't think that this thing would kind of, uh, you know, when it started to shut down sports in March, uh, I didn't think it would really last this long. So I don't think anybody really did. So, I, you know, I'm trying just not to get too far ahead of myself and just see what happens, I guess. Well, I, again, that was the big thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about when it came to uh, your poetry. You mentioned working on a few projects there. What, what do you think um, for you was the biggest thing when it came to, like you said, majored in poetry in college? You, you write all the time. Obviously, it goes hand in hand with broadcasting more so than some people may think. Why did you want to become a sports broadcaster and how, how fast did you uh, kind of know that you wanted to kind of put those two hands? in hand both sports casting and poetry well i wanted to be a sports announcer when i was a kid and i think by the time i got to high school i got a little experience as an intern at a radio station in st louis and then into college i kind of wondered if it was a large enough scope for kind of what i was looking to do i felt pulled at that time to other things like uh i I had a, a play that was performed at the YMCA, for example, when I was wow. in high school. I wrote and directed a play at college. I had sort of this, these other kind of ideas, and uh, I was majoring in poetry at college. And I think the biggest thing when you're an English major is that there's not really a direct sort of thing that you can do um, with a lot of the things you learn after college. It gives you such a good basis in terms of reading comprehension, thinking critically, understanding complex concepts and things like that but it's it's not like you know you major in accounting you become an accountant right and um you know i just i don't know about a eight months or so after i graduated my mom kind of said you know have you thought about giving sports announcement a try and i i just kind of went back to it and i think for a couple of years i really just tried to do it the way that um i you know you get a prescription from the doctor, you only take that number of pills, you know. I was right. only taking the, the prescribed number of pills. And, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years into it, I think that it, it was just kind of this idea that I, I had to synthesize. I kind of think of myself as, as everybody does, as being a couple of different people. And I had this sort of more chaotic, creative side. And that had appeal to people, especially younger people who, are looking for something different now that sports announcing is becoming more internet-based. My thesis, I guess, is that in this time of great technological change, when streaming and broadcasting games has become uh, something anyone can do at any time, Mm -hmm. we're kind of waiting in a little bit of a lag period artistically for the transition from sort of that traditional radio style to something that is more reflective of the expressionism that people have become accustomed to uh, on Snapchat and on Twitter and on Facebook. And I actually have, you know, sort of a, a dislike of social media because I think it's sort of overwhelming and it can, it can sort of hurt people. Oh, yeah. but, um, at the same time, people's artistic tastes have been uh, sort of bent by uh, those media. And so uh, sports announcing is something, especially baseball announcing, that's been caught up in a sense of traditionalism. 
But I think that change is, is going to have to come where people will just lose interest who are my age, I'm 28, or, uh, you know, especially with uh, people who are probably more like 20 or 21 in your generation uh, who just don't have the interest in hearing sort of the Mel Allen imitation and mm-hmm. Red Barber imitation and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's kind of a risk, but I also don't really see myself as a traditional sports announcer. I see sports announcing as a form of American poetry, especially baseball announcing, that is well embraced, but maybe has been written off as a dynamic art form. Uh, When you talk about the greatest sports announcer, the greatest baseball announcer of all time, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to say Vince Scully. You know, Vince Scully was great, but he started his career really only about 25 years into the advent of radio. I mean, radio became um, kind of widespread in the 20s, and he started with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1950. Of course, it's amazing that he carried into the late 2010s as he did. But when you talk about an art form being perfected just a couple of decades after the medium is invented, uh, to say nothing of, of the way that that sort of medium has given way to television and now streaming and social media, um, it doesn't really make sense. It's right. not really something that uh, holds water artistically. And so I, I see it as just a, a medium that can still be improved upon. And I think that that does separate me a little bit from other people in sports announcing who... Uh, you know, philosophically, whether unconsciously or consciously, I think have kind of given up on a, a futuristic or a progressive look at, at sports announcing. So, I guess it's kind of the uh, kind of the deep dive into sort of my you know my style in a, in a critical way. No, I totally agree with that point. And and for your case, did you kind of feel that way, like right off the bat when you got into broadcasting? Because, like you said, like when people get into this business such as myself and I talked to Boog Shambi about this I know you've talked to him as well he, he was like yeah people uh, go into this business and automatically want to talk like a 65 year old white man like because that's like the older generation when did you realize that you wanted to kind of be like the first real uh, you know quote unquote millennial broadcaster and kind of uh, 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 show the game in a different and unique way well, uh, you know, it's a summation of your experiences. I think a lot of people feel like that subconsciously and deep down. And when you get to the point that Boog is, where you're an immensely successful broadcaster, you actually feel comfortable enough uh, with your place in society and your place in the business and your place personally to really articulate it. You know, to kind of give you another look at it, I was talking to a, a a major league broadcaster just last week and he said you know i really i i don't like your style at all joe and the problem is is that you um you are trying to do things that at the major league level would be fine but you're just coming up and you're sort of taking these liberties to make the game uh humorous and a little bit more fun yeah. And so he actually liked, I think that he liked my style. He just didn't like that it was a younger person. Who's yeah, trying, right. Um, uh, you know, it's just it's just kind of uh, punching above his weight a little bit. And, you know, I mean, I, I hear criticism far worse than that, you know, uh, and it kind of just rolls off my back. But I think that 
in order to understand it, you have to understand kind of the jobs and things that I, I took early in my career. Really, my first full-time job was working at Cahoma Community College in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And Cahoma is a historically black college. It's the only historically black junior college in Mississippi. It's small town. And if you've ever seen the Netflix show, Last Chance You, yeah. uh, we were actually featured on that, season two, episode six. And so my announcement is, is at the end of the episode. But really, the, the title of that uh, episode was a good summation of the the prospects of Cahoma's uh, sports success. The title of that episode was The Curse. And the first year I was at Cahoma, we were 10 and 118 across five sports. And across the three years that I was there, I think we lost about 75 or 80% of the games. And we lost constantly. And uh, the experience, though, was extremely meaningful to me because it was outside of sort of the norm of sports announcing. It was well off the beaten path uh, geographically for America. It was in a place that prizes blues music and uh, soul music and things like that. And so I think that I started to see that you have to um, sort of reconfigure uh, what you're doing in order to inject a little bit more uh, personality and a little bit more of your own personal style into these games. And I ended up going to the University of West Florida for a couple years after that. And I remember I was doing this tournament of neutral games. Uh, It wasn't even a West Florida team. And I was just doing some one-liners and things, and the kids in the in the press box were all laughing, and they were the student assistants for the game. They were all they all thought it was great, and so when I went back, I kind of cut some of the highlights from it, and I just cut more of the one-liners rather than just the uh, the great plays themselves. Right. And I started to see that that was what was really appealing to these young people. Now the older people at the school including my own, you know, supervisors and things, they didn't get it. And I sort of felt hurt at times because, you know, I was getting results. I was just doing what was getting results, but I just felt a little bit alienated um, because I didn't feel like it was really being embraced by the people who were in charge. Right. But I refined it and I tried to get better at it and I tried to... um, you know, continue to push forward. You have to push forward through adversity if you're going to do something original because there is a knee-jerk reaction in any business to original thinking. And, you know, then uh, I think through a combination of getting better at announcing the games, getting better at combining the uh, highlights and getting better at social media and kind of branding, um, you know, some of those videos went mega viral and went, you know, huge and people, you know, sort of started to know me for that. And uh, I think that it was indicative of uh, taking those lessons that I learned at Cahoma, which was a place that really nobody cared about. Um, nobody knew we were, we were probably the worst in terms of record uh, the worst junior college in America. We probably had the least resources or some of the least amount of resources of any junior college in America. Nobody cared. And the idea, I think, in society is that when you go to a place like West Florida, which is a pretty affluent um, school and is a a Division II powerhouse, well, you should conform 
what you're doing to what they do. And instead, I, I went the other way, and I said, I know what we were doing at Kahoma. What I was doing at Kahoma was lessons will ring true and will reverberate with people here. Mm-hmm. I just have to have the courage to uh, stick by my experiences and stick by my understanding uh, regardless of how people feel. And so I pushed forward and, and was able to get some results. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that hate it. You know, a lot of people that hate those videos. And, you know, I get hate mail and hate tweets and people saying you're a disgrace, you're an embarrassment. But what's funny is that almost always those people are working in broadcasting professionally. The fans, the people who are actually listening, oh, they love it. It's almost uniformly positive. And so it only reinforces my thesis that people who work professionally in sports broadcasting often lose sight of the target, which is to please the fans, to meet them where they're at in a style that will entertain them. And instead, they sort of reflexively, self-reflexively adhere to a tradition that no longer holds as much water in the world. And so that's that's kind of, again, you know, the, the experience uh, that informs, I guess, my work. Oh, and I totally agree with that sense. I mean, I guess the number one thing as a broadcaster that you have to do is get the facts right. You got to be factual, but like, you don't have to be cookie cutter or, or fake. Like, like some of it has been. Like, obviously, Vince Scully did a tremendous job at storytelling throughout a broadcast. Nobody will ever match him. Nobody will ever fill those shoes. Uh, but there's a lot of broadcasters, uh, early '90s, mid 2000s, even now that are you just you, you listen to them on the air. They're good. They're professional broadcasters, but it just almost seems like too well put together and almost fake where like they're none of them are really showing that much of their personalities besides from like a joke here or there for you how quickly did it resonate like you mentioned like you've gotten a lot of, of hate for it but again from the fan perspective a lot of love for it how how quickly did it resonate with players on the field like players that you kind of had to develop relationships with whether it was in college or in minor league ball Oh, they love them. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing. It's a lot of times when you do these teams, independent baseball, which I did for about five years, or affiliate baseball colleges, you know, the players go back and listen to the games afterward where they hear about it from their families. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that that was really who I was kind of, you know, angling it toward to start with. I, I felt like that was, that was always the people that I just wanted to impress, and I wanted to sort of stay on their good side. And, you know, I mean, players are daring. Uh, People who play independent baseball are almost like, you know, modern day pirates in my in my mind or something of that uh, that sort of uh, nature. People who coach, you know, for long stretches and play, try to play for long stretches in independent baseball. uh, They're kind of bucking society's expectations because they're doing something where they maybe don't have the greatest chance of moving up, though there's always success stories of players getting signed by affiliated teams for independent baseball, they don't make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and they're sort of they're sort of just doing this for the thrill in many cases that, you know, whether they'll admit it or not, they're just doing it because they love doing it. And, uh, you know, they're a daring bunch who have, in some ways, you know, maybe not been given the opportunity where they have been rejected um, out of affiliated minor league baseball for, you know, sometimes reasons that don't have anything to do with how good they are as players or people. Mm-hmm. 
And so they, they try to endure, and, and I find that inspiring. I, I really do. I found that to be such a huge source of inspiration um, to take sort of a, a buccaneer type of attitude uh, toward the uh, sports announcing. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I mean, I said that thing about, you know, the hate mail or whatever. I, I didn't mean to seem like, you know, I'm out here taking shells or anything like that. I'm not, it's, I really, it's not like that. You know, the response has actually been, uh, mostly very positive and again it's, it's been pretty much all positive from the fans and that's why I keep doing it the way that I'm doing it because you know uh, the greatest threat to artistic uh, growth and, and you can take this this is, this is the truth but, you know, take it with a grain of salt if you don't if you don't uh, want to take it just as it is but the greatest you know the greatest uh, threat to artistic growth is sort of this uh, this lust for professionalism and I, I do um, essay editing it was something I did in college and I do it uh, kind of on a freelance basis and when I look at people's writing um, people often when they write they can't really say what they need to say right. because they're trying to just sound more professional and they're thinking about well you know if my boss is reading this or my teacher is reading this they're going to expect it to sound a certain way and so in writing you know we see that all the time and uh you know writing an essay for an introductory english class doesn't have the same sort of uh, sanctity that baseball broadcasting has taken on but i i am a believer that in america one of the greatest uh, threats that we face, unfortunately, is that the culture of work, especially corporate work, has supplanted religion in our society and has supplanted spirituality in our society. We sort of venerate these uh, industries and we venerate our own positions uh, within them to the point that sort of bucking those trends even just a little bit and thinking outside of that box just a little bit isn't just uh, trying to do things in a different way, but it's almost like, you know, you go into a, a church and you've, you've spit in the holy water. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't believe in high priests. You know, I don't believe in Pharisees. I don't, you know, yeah. in their own time, there's always people who have done things a certain way. Um but you know the authorities on on things change all the time. There's there's a quote that I always go back to from Mad Men, which is my favorite show. It, it's uh, an older character and a younger character. And the older character says, you know, young men love taking risks because uh, they don't really know the costs. And the younger character says, and old men love building golden tombs and sealing us all in with them. And that's the truth, ideologically. Um, in any art form, the people who made their success in one medium with one style are, uh, you know, liable to go back to that and try to push that on the rest of us, but doesn't have meaning in today's world. I don't believe that. I believe that people make their own meaning and they make their own uh, sort of um, yeah, way. I, I still believe that, which I think is actually more of an old time romantic sort of ideal in America. You know, my great grandfather came here in 1912 from Italy, 
And, uh, you know, he was very much in that tradition of people looking for opportunity, you know, and right. looking for America as being a land where anything was possible. And, you know, in, in the hundred years or a hundred plus years that have gone by since, you know, maybe we've become a country that doesn't look for opportunity all the time. I think we look for uh, tradition yeah. and things like that more so than, than America is something that's a horizon or a frontier. We look for uh, uh, something that's that's gone and it's never coming back. Now, for you, obviously, breakthrough with the Johnson City Cardinals. Have there been any teams that you've kind of felt are kind of going in this direction of trying to be different, trying to innovate? I know for like one team that if the timing was perfect for you to be perfect for would be like the Savannah Bananas. Like uh, that's yeah. like exactly what they're looking for. Have there been any teams uh, that you haven't worked for that you think that are kind of headed towards that direction in a style of like not only broadcasting but like even the game of baseball? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, Savannah reached out to me, and, and yeah. we had some talks before the season. And you know, I, it is my goal to do major league baseball, so I admire what they do. But I was I was sticking right. with the uh, Johnson City uh, for the year, and you know, unfortunately, it's you know Johnson City isn't playing and things like that. So you kind of look back and say, well, maybe I should have taken <laughs> Savannah, Savannah Bananas thing, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I think everybody understands it. I, you know, I was just talking to a guy from uh, from CBS Sports just uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, you know, I, I work with all these colleges, and uh, you know, one thing that's pretty clear to us is that uh, you know the kids just aren't really getting much out of uh, our seventy-two-year-old broadcaster. Yeah, they just don't care as much, you know. And, and no offense to whoever that guy is, and no offense to all the. Uh, older folks out there but uh, you know it's just that kids don't really respond to that anymore and so, so what can we do to sort of to sort of figure out another way of doing this whether it's just you know a separate broadcast that's only on uh, Facebook or it's only on Instagram or whatever and uh, you know he was saying that's something we're looking at for the next two to three years and I, I thought about well, two to three years you know what I mean I understand for the corporate world that's quick, <laughs> you know, but uh, you got to move on quick. You know, you got to you got to figure something out. But it did show me he was. You know, people are having those conversations and discussions. It takes guts. That's the thing about it. Is most people who, you know, work in the sports announcing, you know, they want something. They want to sort of break out of those molds, and they want to find something that's more uh, spiritually rewarding than just. Uh, sort of conforming to what's come before, but it just takes courage to do it because you're talking about probably losing some listeners in order to gain more oh, listeners. Yeah. You're talking about uh, trying to attract younger fans, casual fans, which uh, you know Major League Baseball has been bleeding uh, for years, and uh, it just takes courage. You know, I, I really do think that, and. Uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, the tragedy of the corporate world. I think that's the tragedy of, of more corporatized thinking and groupthink and sort of collective action is that the individual's uh, uh, capacity for courage is almost always mitigated by the, uh, the need to sort of uh, move these things through what everybody else is thinking. You have to always move them through the filters of the next person up, the next person up, the next person up. Right. And you come out with a more deleted product. And, uh, you know, so I, I think it's a mixed bag, but I do feel like people understand it. It's just that challenge of, you know, you want something different and then you hear something different. 
and then it's sort of there can be that knee-jerk reaction of, well you know we wanted something different but just not this and so it's you know it's a challenge but i do think the business is changing and uh, i also think that you know, you have to uh, again sort of understand that. I, you know, I don't, I don't think of doing one team or anything like that mm-hmm. to uh, be my goal. I, you know, uh, you know, artistic fulfillment and professional fulfillment have to be, you know, uh, pretty distinct in some ways. And uh, you know, it's a personal gauge of whether you become stagnant or you're still trying to do something different. And uh, those kind of metrics you know, mean a lot more to me, I suppose. Yeah, and when you were talking about, you know, some of, like, the disapprovals from broadcasters that would reach out to you, was it anybody that you were, like, maybe had looked up to or anybody that, like, kind of had, like, uh, a hint of uh, influence on your broadcasting style or was it more of just people in the business and you were like, yeah, I mean, this is going to happen, like you said, like, growth is going to take time and uh, it's going to take, at first, less listens than more listens, but was there anybody uh, that reached out to you that you're like, oh, man, that actually kind of hurt. Uh, not really. Yeah. I don't really take that kind of thing personally. I don't mm-hmm. really, you know, people, I, I try not to take the praise that personally either, even though it's gratifying. Right, you know, right. And, uh, things like that. I, you know, I remember, I'll say his name because I thought this was a fine assessment, but this guy, Drew Goodman, was at the uh, Winter Meeting Season broadcast yeah. for the Colorado Rockies. Mm-hmm. Drew, uh, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Drew because I just never really watched anything in Rockies, just not, you know, it's not my section of the country or whatever, and uh, a friend of mine met him, and he sort of waved me over here at the Mandalay Bay Casino in Las Vegas, he said, you got to meet my friend Joe, and uh, Drew said, well, this guy's been hyping you up, and, you know, (laughs) he's been saying, you know, you're great, you have a clip, so I play him a clip. And it was something like, you know, fastball inside corner, Sean Stetson sitting them down quicker than extra strength laxatives. Oh, and I could see, I could see Drew just, you know, sort of the lip curl, and he sort of recoils, and he looks at me and says, you know, that doesn't really float my boat. <laughs> that doesn't really float yeah. my boat. But I could see you coming back here in five years, and that being the most popular thing here. Oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, oh, that's a good assessment because, I mean, you're kind of acknowledging that, that you know, there's a larger fan base than just what your tastes are. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's fairly bold to play that clip, but I thought that clip was good because, I, you know, I mean, it's just funny. There's not really anything. Right. I think wrong with laxatives. <laughs> I, I, try to, I try to take laxatives regularly, though not too regularly because you can become dependent on them so right. easily. Hint out there to all the kids. Don't, don't get addicted to stool softeners. You're talking about taking too many pills, you know, earlier. You got out that stool softener. Yeah. Rabbit hole. It can be hard to, to find your way out of it. Oh, my God. And so, you know, I mean, but that that was really the, uh, you know, that, that was really some good advice. And, oh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really care that much about right you know, about what other broadcasters think, because, you know, at the end of the day, and I say this about myself as well, so I I do identify with this, I think when you talk to a lot of broadcasters who get into the position that they are in, where they work for these higher-level teams, well, a lot of them will acknowledge right off the bat, well, it was luck, you know, it just was timing and knowing the right people, and there were a lot of other people who could have done this job, uh, 
Uh, and it was just luck. You know, it doesn't mean that they don't think that they're good at what they do, but there's an acknowledgement that there's a lot of other, um, you know, people out there who could probably do the same thing. And, uh, you know, generally the, there is sort of the, the humble element to it. And I, you know, I think a lot of what I've been able to do has been luck as well because I've been, uh, you know, uh, just lucky enough to, to have opportunities to have, you know, gone to college, to have had a supportive family and things like that. And, uh, you know, you just have to understand that. And so, you know, I mean, what's the difference between somebody who does an independent baseball game and somebody who does a major league baseball game? Well, there's not really that much of a gap, to be honest with you. It's actually easier to do, you know, sort of the higher you go, uh, you just have more support. I was doing a tournament with Mizzou and Kansas State, a couple other teams in the Division One level right before the coronavirus, just a few weeks before. And, oh, it was great. You know, we had this whole, it was through Flow Sports, and they had this whole thing. They had all these, you know, cameras, and they had, you know, a director and a producer, and all of them were pros, and everything went great because they kind of would just say, you know, they'd be in my ear and tell me, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And I thought, boy, it's, you know, it's harder to do things at the junior college level or at the NCAA Division II level when a lot of times maybe you're just the only person up there and you don't have any, you know, sort of support. You're kind of just trying to figure out, you know, okay, what's happening on the field, <laughs> you know, and, and all this, what's happening all my equipment and things like that. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a beauty to that. And there's a Zen to that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. With the major leagues, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, you know, people get into those positions. Um, and a lot of times they just never leave. And uh, maybe the thing they have going for them most is inertia. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just take that. I take that as, a, you know, great stuff. But, I, you know, I try to look at, you know, what they say as well and try to take that. Uh, into consideration and, and try to try to put it all together, uh, but but you just can't you can't ever let you know tastemakers create art mm-hmm. because the people who ignore people's tastes uh, ignore the tastes of the tastemakers often end up uh, making more of an impact. I, you know, I mean Van Gogh sold one painting in his lifetime. Right, and that was a few months before he killed himself. You know, he was, uh, you know, he got that one thing, you know, and uh, and uh, that was it. But, you know, sort of in his own time, he didn't have that. Now you look at it and say, you know, he's paid himself for $100 million. <clears throat> and so, you know, I mean, sometimes you're ahead of your time. And I just think that, uh, you know, again, maybe it's just the culture that we're in now. But, you know, people don't want to be ahead of their time. Everyone wants to be a saint. No one wants to be a prophet anymore. Right. And for you, dude, you're talking about the, the climb from minor league baseball to major league baseball. Obviously, the higher you go, the more support you have, like you said, when it comes from uh, both a production standpoint and a crew standpoint. But for you, in minor league baseball, what do you think were some of your most, I don't say difficult, but like humbling experiences working in minor league baseball before you uh, reached the Johnson City Cardinals? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you know, it's an interesting, uh, very interesting sort of uh, um, 
dichotomy because, you know, in some ways, Johnson City was actually a lot more difficult than the situation that I, I came from, which was uh, an independent baseball team called the Texas Arrowhawks, which I worked for three years. And the reason I say this is because, you know, at that uh, particular stop with the Arrowhawks, you know, we're talking about a 5,500-person stadium with 14 or 15 suites fully functional press box, things like that. And then you go to Johnson City, and, and really it's a high school stadium that the, the team plays in uh, with a very cramped press box that you can get, you know, maybe four or five people. And so, you know, it's one of the sort of uh, subtle ironies of independent baseball and affiliated minor league baseball, uh, just that Johnson City or an affiliated minor league baseball team, depending on the level, it, it can provide more sort of prestige and cachet but the work itself can actually be a little bit more difficult just because of the circumstances. Now, yeah. if I had to choose one of those teams to work for, I was, you know, I picked Johnson City. I could have gone back to the Aries, I could have gone to Johnson City, and I would do it again. I, you know, I would, I would take Johnson City. So, I mean, that's the, that's sort of the perspective on it is that uh, sometimes when you move up the levels to work for these organizations, it's actually a little bit more difficult uh, than you came from until you get until you get maybe to the very top until you get to, you know, a triple A or the, or the major leagues. But, uh, you know, you talk about humbling experience. I mean, that's a, the minor leagues is completely about humbling experience. I've had, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And, uh, you know, I, I look back at some of the, some of the moments that I, I felt like I really failed in that, you know, helped to uh, teach me, you know, quite a bit about, uh, the importance of, uh, you know, being, well, staying on your own path while also trying to uh, uh, provide a good product for others. I mean, last year I was with the Airhogs was uh, probably the most interesting season I've ever had in professional baseball. I'm working on a, a memoir about it right now that I, I hope can get published by the end of the year. It's the story of how we basically we partnered with the Chinese national team and we became the Texas Airhogs powered by Beijing Shogun Eagles. And so we had uh, about 40 players kind of rotating in and out of the roster from mainland China. And uh, a lot of these players were not even on the junior college level in America. I mean, that, that was just the truth. We went 25 and 75. And uh, we were the worst team in the league by far. Yeah. Uh, now, it was also one of the most rewarding experiences I had because it was a completely different culture. I loved the, you know, the kids from China and the coaches. I had a lot of fun with them, and they were, you know, they were very, very nice people, and they were a lot, just a lot of fun to be around. But I remember one of the moments that sort of, uh, you know, talk about a humbling kind of experience was, you know, when I, I was I was there, and and I asked my uh, I asked my friend. Ping Yu, who was our translator and who was an intern at the stadium, and I said, you know, uh, Ping, we're doing this stuff. We have this beautiful video broadcast for the first time in three years that have been here. Do people in China listen? And she looked at me and said, no, it can't get through the government censors. And I went down on a knee, and it was actually just, I was laughing like a hyena. And it was, it was about four or five hours before a game, and it was just, we were kind of sitting in the empty sort of suites area of the stadium, and my laughter was just kind of reverberating throughout the, uh, the stadium. 
And I remember she said, you have a crazy laugh. <laughs> and I laughed in a pitched way. And I was like, yeah, you bet. You're, you're damn right I do. <laughs> and uh, it was frustrating in a sense because we had, we had upgraded the broadcast. And of course, you're trying to do this for somebody out there listening. And a lot of our, a lot of our uh, listenership had dwindled. You know, it just, when you do independent baseball, two-thirds of the uh, uh people you broadcast the games for are family and probably another 20% are just the friends of the players. But it took me back to really what was my first experience with that team. I had been doing a couple years of professional baseball, some other teams before, and I got hired by the Ear Hogs. And it was a preseason game. It was the first game I ever did for the Ear Hogs. We were uh, just doing an internet radio broadcast, and there was really nobody in the stadium. The other team, the Fargo Moorhead Red Hawks, were uh, not even broadcasting the game. And we had this kid named Derek Callahan pitching, and before the game, I checked our little uh, computer program, and I could see 46 people were listening, including uh, somebody named P. Callahan, probably his family. And I was a little bit disappointed because I thought, oh, 46, and there was not a lot of people. Right. And in the second inning of that game, uh, with two outs and two strikes, Derek, who was only supposed to throw two innings, um, threw a fastball, and the batter shot this line drive up the middle at 108 miles per hour off the bat, and it hit him right above the left eye. Oh, and he collapsed onto the field. And there's nobody in the stadium, but I was on the second level, the suites area, and... Uh, I, I promise you, it sounded the same going into his face as it did coming off the bat. Oh, and he went down, and uh, you know, people rushed onto the field. And it was in that moment that I really, I realized the, you know, I could very, very easily be commentating the end of their son's life yeah. to this family across the country. They were in the Seattle area, and we were in Dallas, and um, the weight of it was enormous. And uh, I just try to say what I saw and, and just, you know, kind of give the, uh, you know, there's people around him and eventually he was able to sit up yeah. and eventually he was able to get off the field. And I remember I exhaled. I don't really remember as much about what I said anymore, but I, I exhaled and I just said, um, you know, he's going to be okay. He's walking off the field pretty much under his own power. And two and a half months later, uh, we were 20 games out of the division race, and we had some very crazy season. We ended up 34 and 65. So it's sort of travel disasters and all this stuff. And uh, two and a half months after that happened, he got on the bus to go to Joplin, Missouri, to play the Joplin Blasters. And I did a pregame interview with him, and he said, you know, my mom really appreciated the announcing that night I got hit. And, oh, I cried after that interview. I cried on the pregame show. Wow. I cried after the game where he, he got hit. And that night, he came out of the bullpen, three and a third, ten in a row set aside. Wow. And to this day, it was the most inspiring thing I've ever seen on a baseball field or any sports field. Um, and it happened for a team that nobody cared about. We were, uh, you know, essentially the worst record in the league. Uh, we were the lowest attendance in the league, and, and of course, it's independent baseball, so sort of the level of interest is is uh, maybe a little bit lower. Some teams get a lot of interest, but but not us. And uh, you know, it, it taught me two things, which is that you know, power 
is often rooted in anonymity. Mm-hmm. It's only when you are taking these experiences that might not mean as much to the outside world, but mean everything uh, to the people who are directly involved with them that you can find uh, deeper meaning in anything. And then it taught me never look at the number of people uh, who are listening. And to right. this day, I remember when I uh, got to Johnson City last year and our assistant general manager, uh, Cap Deal, said, can you look up how many people are listening during the game? I'd like to share that with some of our advertisers. And I said, you know, there is a way, and you can kind of enter a password onto the software and see it, and I will give you that link and the password, but um, you have to promise that you will never tell me during the season or during a game or before a game how many people are listening. <laughs> right. Because it's not about how many people are listening. It's about the individual impact that you can have on one listener. And to this day, I've never seen someone take that kind of contact again as Derek took it yeah. uh, right in the skull. Well, I have seen players hit in the head and hit in the helmet and things, but no one who in that moment was hit so squarely and just fell down. So it is kind of a once in a blue moon, and I pray and you know, I hope that it, it's not something I ever uh, see again. But you know, the truth is, is that even in the more normal circumstances, if you can provide something to one listener and that makes a difference to them, then you've accomplished your goal. Uh, if your goal is to broadcast to a million people, uh, then the news is that there's thousands of people who do that. You know, we don't, I mean, we, we act like that's sort of the holy grail. Right. The truth is, is that every network, you know, will reach millions of people if you're on the Big Ten Network or you're on ESPN, especially Fox Sports, and you're going to reach a lot of people. But among that group, how many people have the individual impact of reaching someone on a level beyond sports or beyond television or beyond radio? How many people rise to the occasion of touching them more deeply in their souls? Mm-hmm. And that's art. That's where art, you know, starts to diverge from entertainment. And so, you know, to me, uh, you know, I went through twists and turns in independent baseball and, and Johnson City and the collegiate side and things like that. But I, I look back all the time on that experience and, you know, um, just was it as bad as taking a fastball off of that, off of face? Um, he put things in perspective for me because he did that for a sense of his own determination, not for glory right. or anything like that. And uh, I, I've used that experience, my experience as well as his experience, to, to draw a lot of inspiration from, I suppose. And that was, like you said, uh, not a very uh, competitive team at the time. What, what about last year with the Cardinals? Because you guys actually won the uh, Appalachian League, correct? Like, mm-hmm. how, yeah. how was that whole riding experience? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting at that level. You know, in independent baseball, it's all about winning. Yeah. And so, you know, you see a lot of players who get signed, and if they can't perform, they pretty quickly are scuttled. Um, and, and there's a lot of roster turnover and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, just competition and just it's all results-based. And, and with the Appalachian League, you know, it's a little bit different because it is developmental as well as competitive and so you don't really 
Um, it's not like the major leagues or even like independent baseball where if you're the best player on the team, you're going to play every single day. You know, they do rotate players out of spots to kind of evaluate everyone. It's a short season. It's only, I think, 68 games right. in, the, uh, in the regular season. And so, you know, I think after about two weeks or so watching them, practice and then watching some of the games i felt like the core of our team was probably in the top three or four in terms of talent uh in the in the appalachian league um and you know we we got off to a pretty good start uh we you know but when we really got hot was july and you know the problem with getting hot is that you know people start getting promoted right who uh really are, are kind of your you know, your, your workhorses and your, you know, your real engines. And, uh, I mean, we had a guy named Mike Lee who was, uh, the minor league baseball pitcher of the month in July. I think he had an 064 ERA and he was a very good pitcher. Well, he got promoted in July. And, uh, you know, sort of losing him was, it was a blow. Our pitching just wasn't quite as good, but, um, you know, on the flip side of that, I thought the kids, um, you know, we're extremely talented. I thought we had some, some very good prospects and some players who could be very successful at the, the lower levels of minor league baseball as well as several who I felt could advance, um, you know, well beyond that. I think we got off to slow starts a lot. I think in July we only had two games where we had a, uh, a hit in the first inning. That sounds shocking, but, you know, you yeah. 29 games in July and you end up winning championship. You're thinking a lot higher. We had slow starts. But, you know, on the flip side of that, there's a positive to every situation. I think one thing that we kind of learned is that we're not going to be out of the game no longer, or or no matter how um, uh, long it takes for us to get going. And, uh, you know, coming in the last two games of the season, we were 33 and 33, and we were involved in the closest race, divisional race in all of minor league baseball. It was us, the Kingsport Mets, the Elizabethan Twins and the Bristol Pirates all separated by, I think, a half a game with two games to go. And so is anybody's championship in terms of regular season divisional. And uh, we came up with two wins at the end of the season after losing the first game of the three-game series in Kingsport. Played Bristol and lost the first game of the three-game series and rallied and won. And then played Burlington. And Burlington, it was either Burlington or Pulaski from the other division. I, I feel like we really would have a better chance against Pulaski. Burlington had just, they were 4-2 and two against us in the regular season. The games that they won, there were a, a few games where they just absolutely took us through the wood chipper. <laughs> and, I mean, there was one where they beat us, I think, 13-0, 13-2. Well, you know, luck factors into it to some extent. And I give the credit to the coaching staff, who I feel like was the best in the league, Roberto Espinosa, Rick Herrig, our pitching coach, and Brian Burgundy, our hitting coach. But, you know, there's also a, an element of luck. And where we got lucky was um, Burlington <clears throat> played a 17-inning game in Pulaski to win their divisional playoff series. And what they were supposed to do was take Monday off and then on Tuesday come to Johnson City and start the championship series. We had a, we'd beat Bristol on that same night, a Sunday game. And um, so we were supposed to get a day off Well, there was a hurricane that was brewing in the Atlantic that never actually ended up making uh, landfall. And so the league decided instead of a Tuesday to Thursday championship series, they would do Monday to Wednesday. And so after the 17-inning game, Burlington came to Johnson City 
and I think it was just pure adrenaline. They ended up beating us nine to two, but the game was a little bit closer than that. It was four or two, and a guy made a great play to save a couple runs in the fifth. It could have been a tie game going forward, um, but you know. Um, they kind of burnt themselves out. And that's what happens in professional baseball so many times is when they get off the bus, the adrenaline's going, they're more liable to win that game and then peter off later in the series. And without the benefit of rest, you know, I knew we would win game two because we were a good team. We had a lot of pride and things like that. And we came out and we just blitzed up to Burlington and beat up seven to two. And we came down to the last um, game and I, I just, you know, it was anybody's game, but there were a couple things earlier in the series that just made me feel like we could win. We played terrible defense. We committed five errors in that deciding game, but we out hit them 13 to six. And uh, we actually blew a 3 0 lead. We were up 3 0 and it became 5 3, but I felt like the kids really, when they needed to, um, buckled down and did what we could really do. We could really hit. And we had a couple of pitchers on the roster who uh, could be very dominant, and they just brought their best stuff. And uh, we had to win an 8-6. <laughs> and so it was, I, you know, on the ring, it said the team that wouldn't quit. And I thought that was a great summation. We yeah. just we faced a lot of adversity, and they still found a, a way to get it done. I, I felt like um, our manager, Roberto, did a, a little bit better of a job than Chris Widger during that series, a couple of switches and a couple of decisions. Um, bringing a guy off the bench who got a, a double in the seventh as we sort of rallied to, to take back the lead, uh, things like that. Um, but, you know, it, it's just that combination of, you know, it could have gone out of way. We were very, very close to not even being in the playoffs. And uh, it's that mix of luck and determination and skill and management it just comes together you know it just comes together and so you know i mean i was overjoyed i mean to me that was like the greatest you know feeling in the world to be able to call that last game and to be able to be on the field celebrating and things like that um i mean it's an amazing feeling and you know i didn't really have anything to do with the team's success Uh, so I just credit the kids and the management and uh, things like that to uh, help bring it home. But it, it does go to show you, you know, the line between success and uh, being completely out of it is actually, it can be very, very thin. And, I, you know, there were times late in the season where it just kind of mathematically, I didn't, I didn't know what it would add up for us. I just wasn't 100% convinced we could uh, we could do it, but I never stopped believing that, that we potentially could, and uh, yeah, it, it just worked out. Do you ever wear the ring out in public, like all the time, or is it kind of something that's just kind of on your dresser? What was that? Do you wear the ring out in public all the time, or is it something that's just kind of like on your dresser, on your trophy uh, case? I gave it to my parents. Yeah, there I gave it go. to my parents. Yeah, so I, I do. I, I wear it, uh, yeah, I meet once out to a uh, family sort of party to show some some people and uh, <laughs> things like that. I haven't really worn it out in public, but I've hardly gone out in public. You know, right. you get up almost a year after it happens. So I just got it, I think, in March. <laughs> you know, oh, so right. it just, it just uh, that was that was the you know coronavirus and all that stuff. So I I, I don't really uh, wear it that much, but it's uh, it's something I look at. You know, and, and, you know, think about and. Uh, 
you know, learned a lot of lessons in Johnson City and learned a lot about myself and about baseball and things like that. So I, I'm very proud of it. But I, I gave it to my parents because, you know, I mean, we're from St. Louis and yeah. live in St. Louis and stuff. So, it, you know, it, it really, it's it's not about the ring. Not to say I don't love the ring. Right? <laughs> you know, that experience. But, uh, you, you know, really, you know, I had the experience and I would not have been able to have the experience if I didn't have the sort of supportive family that I have. So I, I gave it to them. And, you know, I, I think they'll hold on to it. And, you know, like I said, you know, eventually I'll give it to, you know, my descendants so they can get a, a value meal at McDonald's with it. Maybe if they pawn it or something. No, I'm kidding. I'm sure it's worth more than that. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, no, they, you know, I, I hope that they, they do hold on to it. And, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's some... You know, again, it, it's meaningful, but, um, you know, at the same time, there, there's a lot more meaning to it than just than just the ring itself. Right. And, and from a broadcast standpoint, I only got a couple more questions for you. I don't want to take too much of your time. From a broadcast perspective, because I always enjoy uh, the answers to some of these questions, what, what do you think is your biggest broadcast blunder on the air? Something that you're like, oh, man, maybe I shouldn't have said that, or it just, like, came out wrong uh, verbiage-wise? I know for me personally, I did a softball game in February, and uh, I, I said sacrifice blunt instead of sacrifice bunt. Kind of just, just a verbiage thing. Yeah, just a verbiage thing, but at the same time, it sounds awful. I don't even think I realized it. Uh, it wasn't 420 either, so it was really awkward. So for you, though, personally, what was your biggest broadcast blunder on the air? Well, I don't really think of that as a blunder. I think of that as a happy accident. <laughs> you know, um, no, I've made so many of them I can hardly count, to be honest with you. I, I, you know, I, oh, boy, when I was first starting out, we had a playoff game in the Frontier League, and there was a bouncer down a third baseline, and uh, a guy in the Washington Wild Things made a great play to catch our first baseman, Brian McConkey, the River City Rascals. It was a close play. And I meant to say um, it was close. Uh, McConkey almost beat it out because the ball almost pulled the first baseman off the bag. And instead I said something like, uh, it was really close, and McConkey beat it off. And I kind of paused. I was like, "Yeah, actually, uh, beat it out." Almost. Yeah. And I just—it sounded awkward as heck. <laughs> but oh, I made so many. I made so many mistakes. I, I mean, hell, I'll tell you. When I was with the Earhawks in the last season, you know, I had to kind of get a crash course in Chinese uh, before the season, just in terms of how to pronounce some of the names on the roster, and they were very oh, complicated. Because that language is, is just different than ours, and there's sort of tones and sort of the way you inflect your voice. And I, I really struggled with it. I was not very good at it. And, you know, in three years, it was a, it's 100 games a season in the American Association. And it's probably a couple of preseason games. So probably in three years of the year, I, I did 305 games. There's only one game I missed, which was uh, we were going to Sioux City on June 8th that season. And uh, one of the perks of being uh, partnered with, with the Chinese national teams, we had a little more money, and we were flying places rather than taking kind of this little tin can bus that we'd been riding around on during my time there. And uh, it was a travel disaster, and one of the flights that was taking a team up there got canceled. And so only about uh, six 
60% of the team even made it to the game. And of course, you know, I mean, I'm sort of a non-essential you know, part of it. And I ended up getting left in, uh, in Dallas. And that was the one game I missed. And the guy who I was sort of supposed to be on a, a flight with was one of the Chinese pitchers. And sort of the one flight got canceled. They, they tried to get us on another flight, which ended up getting canceled as well for some different reasons. Uh, and this guy's name was Ron Song. And I guess that at the time, we were only about three weeks into the season. And I had kind of, I had done a little crash course and sort of written down sort of in English how I, how I you know, would pronounce it. And I thought his name was Yan Soon, not Ron Song. Yeah. And so we're sitting in this airport together, in the DFW airport, for like 10 hours. And actually ended up sleeping at an airport hotel uh, and getting up the next morning at like four o'clock and getting on a flight and eventually making it to Sioux City. But the whole time we're sitting there, I'm calling this guy Yang Soon rather than <laughs> Rong Song. And it's just kind of a subtle, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a bad pronunciation. Yeah. It's a little bit different, but, uh, you know, I was kind of embarrassed about it. Um, once I kind of, you know, got a little more comfortable with pronouncing the names, but I, I was just, it wasn't anything that ever happened on the air. But I just felt like, you know, I just, I was calling this guy pretty much the, the wrong name uh, while we were sitting there together. And so, you know, stuff like that happens all the time. I do think that for myself, you know, one of the biggest things is you take your, your mind and your eye off the play. And sometimes things, you know, crazy things can happen um, after the play. And, and that's, you know, something you have to remember when you do college baseball, my baseball is that, you know, stuff that you take for granted is happening. Uh, players hitting the right, uh, you know, base, throwing to the right base, or making an accurate throw, or whatever. In the major leagues, you know, often that doesn't happen in the minor leagues and, and the college side. So you have to kind of watch the play completely through. And I, oh, I've missed so many things, you know, through the years that I've had to backtrack and catch up on. It's almost, you know, I, there's not even one specific that comes to mind. Uh, Suffice it to say that it's happened often. Yeah. And it's just part of the growth process. It's part of the limitations of those roles, but it's also just part of, you know, getting better. And um, I think my advice is that if you don't have the mentality of, you know, I'm just learning how to do this, then you'll end up making yourself miserable. Right. Because you, you will beat yourself up for a long time. And I think that, again, I, you know, I don't want to go, go on too long here and, and sort of go weed on rabbit hole, but, you know, for two or three years when I started doing it, I was so afraid of saying something like, um, it's a sacrifice blunt, or he just got beat off the bag, right. he beat it off. I was so afraid <laughs> because we live in this society of social media right. where people cut little things and they say oh my god did you hear what he said no i mean there's a million mistakes and maybe one of them ends up you know going viral on twitter or something but it's almost a sort of american entertainment surveillance i call it surveillance i call it the aes uh, complex which is sort of a puritanical america uh and and working in combination with sort of social media to embarrass people, right. um, even for mistakes that are understandable. And I had this great big fear, and, and one of my heroes is uh, Ken Kesey, great Ken Kesey, who's uh, the author of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and some of the great novels, and um, 
one of his life philosophies was that you have to embrace your fear. And when I look at some of those uh, clips that have gone viral and I look at more the style that I do now, you know, when you say things like you know, flash in the leather like a nudist colony on a dude ranch retreat, right. you are you're leaning into that fear of of oh my gosh, what if I say the wrong thing? But the truth is is that in American broadcasting, broadcasters go so far out of their way to try to make you feel comfortable that they end up playing to a lower denominator than what their audience is actually capable of. They end up patronizing their audience by trying too hard to make them feel comfortable. By making them feel uncomfortable, that is a way of making them feel comfortable because it's tapping into uh, sort of the great Buddhist ideal, which is the dis-ease of modern living, the, the, the uneasiness of contemporary existence when you're in something that's never as perfect as you remember it or you envision it to be in the future and that couldn't be any any truer anywhere than minor league baseball or college baseball these low level sports people have these idealized visions of the sport that they see when they watch the MLB on TV or they watch you know, sort of these high octane uh, technically perfect sort of uh, ballets and when you're willing to embrace the uh, the flaws of something then that's where the real uh, the real joy can shine through yeah and so you know my advice is to take those moments that you make you feel uncomfortable and embrace the fact that they're making you feel anything at all we do live in, and I keep going off as little philosophical things, yeah, that's all right, but we live in a society that's intent on numbing us wow. from emotional experience. And, and we have this sort of bottled emotion, social media or television or things like that. But what we have for real, the capacity to feel real emotion has become rarer and rarer in a society that's become overly rationalized that's uh, uh, more reliant on second-hand experiences, experiencing things through a, a phone lens or something like that. And so we have, to, uh, we have to embrace anything that actually gives us genuine emotion in this world. And if you can do that, then that's how you find satisfaction. And that all starts with being yourself, and that's what you've done best. And the last thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go is for you, with your style of broadcasting, kind of trying to be uh, uh, kind of the, the vocal point to that, what, what do you think have been some of your favorite calls, if you honestly don't have one, but what are some of your favorite calls, if not one, that you've had on the air? <laughs> well... You know, one of my things is I try not to repeat the lines too often. Yeah. So I think some of the challenge of the fun is to just try to one-up and sort of can I come up with something better the next time. And so, uh, you know, I, I I just, that's kind of why I really missed, you know, announcing right now because there's not as much challenge as much right. as the life. Um, you know, it's a combination of different factors. It's a combination of, of you know, did they come at the right moment in the game and things like that? And uh, also, did I remember them? I think there's some that I really liked, and I just, you know, it's pretty lost in the shuffle. But uh, <laughs> I think the, the junior college men's soccer tournament, uh, 
There's one zero with about 15 minutes left, and this guy for Eastern Florida State, Levante Johnson, uh, broke through and uh, scored kind of this incredible goal by running a couple of defenders to tie the game 1-1. He beat this guy, Oliver Semmel, who I think had given up like a you know a quarter of a goal per game. It was sort of an absurdly good goaltender. And I said, you know, net this like an unlucky dolphin and an industrial fishing boat. Slipper! <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was one. I think when we tied a game in the Lone Star Conference Tournament with men's soccer at St. Mary's, and I said, uh, it was long free kick, and a guy got a hit on it to a tie game against St. Edwards. And I said... Uh, trying this open like campus security had to do with me when I got trapped in those porta potties uh, <laughs> stuff like that I just uh, you know those are some of my soccer ones that I yeah. look at um, I think the baseball ones probably sca- uh, after a, a strikeout scattering them like <laughs> scattering them like toenail clippings in a Denny's ladies room hey you ever been inside of a Denny's ladies room <laughs> uh, I don't know why I went against Denny's or anything like that. All right. Um, no, I feel you. I definitely, I definitely see that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. The more random ones are really the ones. I, you know, but here's the thing. It's not. It's, it's one of those deals where you get a personal satisfaction out of pushing the envelope. And I don't think I've ever intentionally said anything, or probably unintentionally said anything that has been, uh, you know, something that I'm not, uh, not, you know, proud of or that's gotten me in trouble. But it's just, you know, the weirdness factor, you sometimes get that, you get that satisfaction out of pushing the envelope a little bit just to, just to show that you are still trying to be weird and still trying to be odd and still trying to, to have um, originality. And, and I think if I had to give you one that I really, I really think as uh, being meaningful to myself and some other people was uh, when we clinched the divisional series against Bristol we did a double play and I'll always say something like you know hey either Uncle Gary's mule just hooked me in the skull and I'm seeing double where the Cardinals yeah. just turned two and <laughs> I said I, we just turned it with two on two out or two on one out in a two round game and I said dog milk dog milk Two percent unpasteurized dog formula. Hey, I bet dog milk's got me see a double. The Cardinals just turned two to win the divisional series. <laughs> and uh, a couple of days later, when we were getting on the bus to Burlington to go to the championship series, and uh, one of our leaders, John Witkowski, who was a, a really interesting guy, he's a good pitcher, very interesting guy, who had injured in heart and did studio art, painting, and uh, majored in art at Boston College. And he said, you know, I really love that call. Why did you say it? Why was it dog milk? And I said, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the female dog lactates for a much shorter amount of time than a human woman. You know, a female dog only lactates for a couple of months, really, or a few months. Whereas a human can lactate for years, and uh, the female dog turns away the puppy at the teat uh, within weeks of it being born, and I just said, you know, that's the beauty of, of minor league baseball and, and professional baseball and collegiate baseball at the low levels. It only lasts for so long. And you have to enjoy it while it does. It's dog milk. 
And when we won, and I remember John and I think a couple of the other guys, uh, you know, on Instagram and taking pictures of the trophy, and they put hashtag dog milk. And so I said, you know, I, I've kind of reached something here. And to me, it was that fusion of absurdity and randomness and, and sort of that millennial bent for absurdism. But deep down, it was something more philosophical. It was this embrace in a business, professional baseball, whether it's playing or broadcasting or coaching or working in a front office. All of the emphasis is on how can I keep moving up and keep sort of my professional hopes and dreams alive? Yeah. And how can I always be progressing? And this was this, this sort of to the wind kind of acknowledgement, this, this Whitman-like yawp that said, we're only here for a short time, people. We're only here for a short time, whether it's baseball or it's life. And if you spend all your time trying to conform to what the right thing is, then that teeth is going to go dry pretty quick. Yeah. Enjoy the lactation while it lasts, because there is no right thing. We were a team that, you know, in some ways had blown some opportunities. We were 33 and 33. The, you know, the chances of us being there look dim down the stretch of the season, which is, you know, in the scheme of things, isn't that important. Right. You know, we're living this sort of absurd fantasy of doing this. And if you, you spend too much time thinking about what the right thing is, then you don't get the sustenance of the moment. And, um, you know, that to me was, was meaningful to see that it had an impact. And so uh, sometimes I do the hashtag dog milk and I think people yeah. wonder what it means, but, <laughs> you know, maybe that's the point. You know, uh, maybe the point is is that sometimes you're, you're not supposed to uh, understand things in this way that we're all sort of obsessed with, uh, being able to articulate them and, and understanding things front to back. Sometimes it's just a feeling that comes with, uh, with, with expressionism and that's something maybe our society just needs a little more of. Yeah, I mean, I'm envious that you think that way. That writer's perspective right there is why you've been able to do what you've been doing. And, Joey, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. I hope you stay safe out in St. Louis. And and keep writing, man, because it's resulted in some really great stuff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I hope everybody out there appreciates it as well. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Aw, oh, dude. She's definitely gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said... TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.